Welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy. Welcome to the post Pride Month episode. Sorry that I was a little delayed in getting this episode out. However, I wanted to make sure that I got all of the information as accurate as possible for this episode. So forgive me for being a little bit late. You can still do things after a holiday or event. There's the after Labor Day sale or Christmas sale. McDonald's is apparently 365 black, so they do black history stuff outside of Black History Month. So I'm doing my own post Pride Month episode. So this is what this is. According to the Library of Congress, Pride Month is currently celebrated each year in the month of June to honor the 1969 Stonewall Uprising in Manhattan. The Stonewall Uprising was a tipping point for the gay liberation movement in the United States. The uprising occurred after an undercover investigation and police raid at a gay bar in Manhattan in late June of 1969. As a result of the atrocity, many protests were held in support of LGBTQ individuals to have the right to live freely how they wanted to live. If you have the time, look up the Stonewall Uprising and educate yourself. It's a really interesting story and opened my eyes up to the past struggles of individuals in this community. So let's get into today's HPI. And for you first time listeners, HPI stands for Healthy Patient Information. This is where I give bite-sized information on a topic that usually ties into the guests I interview. On today's HPI, I'm going to talk about PrEP therapy for HIV. PrEP stands for Pre-Exposure Prophylaxis. Unfortunately, HIV is very prevalent in the gay male community. According to the CDC, in 2018, there were 1.2 million people infected with HIV and 60% of those were gay and bisexual men. Gay, bisexual, and other men who reported male-to-male sexual contact accounted for almost 70% of new HIV cases in 2018. 30% of those were African-American, 30% were Hispanic, and 27% were white. So once again, 37% of those new HIV cases in 2018 were African-American, 30% were Hispanic, and 27% were white male. This is of the gay, bisexual, and other men who reported male-to-male contact. The age group with the most new cases was individuals born between the age 25 to 34. One of the ways to help decrease the spread of HIV is PrEP therapy. PrEP therapy is medication prescribed to individuals at high risk of being infected with HIV. Well, who are these individuals that are high risk? Great question. Well, let's list them out. Number one, individuals who have had anal or vaginal sex in the last six months and have a sexual partner with HIV, especially if the partner has an unknown or detectable viral load. Notice I said, and in the previous sentence. Some of y'all ears probably picked up at the beginning of the sentence thinking that I was talking about y'all and didn't continue fully listening to the sentence and started feeling guilty. I said, and have a sexual partner with HIV, especially if the partner has an unknown or detectable viral load. In individuals who have HIV, we can 
detect their viral load by doing a viral load test on those individuals. And so you want to know if someone has HIV, what their viral load is. If they don't know what it is, like that's in that unknown category, which puts you at high risk if you're having sexual contact with that individual. And if that the person has a detectable viral load, that is also an increased risk individual. So let's continue with high risk individuals. So number two, individuals who don't consistently use condoms. Number three, individuals who have been diagnosed with an STD in the past six months. And number four, individuals who inject drugs with people who have HIV or share needles. There are two medications approved for PrEP therapy. Yes, two meds only are approved for PrEP therapy. The meds are Truvada and Discovy. You might have seen a couple of commercials on TV for either Truvada or Discovy. Those are used for PrEP therapy. Truvada is used for people who are at high risk of getting HIV via intercourse or IV drug use. So once again, these two medications are used for different individuals. So listen to what I'm saying. Truvada is used for people who are at high risk of getting HIV via intercourse or IV drug use. Discovy is used for people at risk of getting HIV via intercourse, except for people assigned female at birth who are at risk of getting HIV from vaginal sex. So you can't use Discovy for PrEP therapy if you're an IV drug user. You want to use Truvada and not Discovy. So what are some of the common side effects of Truvada and Discovy? Some of the common side effects include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, cough, and bone density loss. Some of the more serious reactions of Truvada and Discovy include pancreatitis, which is inflammation of your pancreas, neutropenia, which is a decrease in the white blood cells, and nephrotoxicity, which means it may damage your kidneys. Like I explained to my patients with any medications, there are potential side effects. Keyword is potential. That doesn't mean you are going to have them, but you potentially can get those side effects. So just like in dating, you can potentially fall in love or you can potentially have your heart broken or maybe you can have your car key. I mean, we hope you don't get any bone loss or nausea or vomiting from these medications or I hope you don't get your car key. But if it happens, we know the likely culprit. Keisha. Keisha is the likely culprit. Keisha keys your car. Get it? Keisha, because her name is Keisha. She keys your car. All right, moving on. Truvada and Discovy. Time, 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 time. What, wait, what, 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 what's going on? What's going on here? What's going on here, boys? You've reached the time limit for the HPI section. We got to wrap this up. We got to keep this podcast train moving and get to the interview section. You reach your limit. But whoa, 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 come on, come on. Give me some more time. Nope, nope, time's up. Got to keep it moving. But I have so much more to talk about. Medication effectiveness, where to get the medication from, what testing needs to be done before starting the medication. I don't care what else you have to talk about. You shouldn't have wasted time telling those lame Keisha jokes. It's time to get on this train and get to the interview section. 
All aboard. Podcast train moving. Well, can I at least introduce the guest? <sighs> yeah, introduce your guest. Just hurry up and get it over. We got places to go. Come on, hurry up. Get this uh get this introduction going. Excuse me, ma'am. You can't get on here with that outfit. You can't get on the podcast train. We have the same dress code as the turkey leg hut, so can't get on here with your body. Oh, God. Well, let me hurry up and give y'all the guests um, that we have this week. I'll give y'all more information on prep therapy at the end of the episode and on another episode. This week's guest is Dr. Gabriella Maris, also known as Dr. Gabby. She is a family medicine physician from Columbia, South Carolina. She attended Medical University of South Carolina College of Medicine for medical school and the University of Pennsylvania for residency. Dr. Maris does a lot of work with the LGBTQ plus community, so I wanted to make sure I had her on here to discuss health matters that pertain to this community. Quick disclosure, if I forget a letter when I'm discussing this topic or inaccurately say the wrong term, please charge it to my head and not to my heart. I'm trying, y'all. I'm trying. So with that said, let's get into the interview with Dr. Maris. This will be a two-part interview, so... There will be another interview released soon with the continuation of this interview. So let's get it. Hurry up. Get it over. Where the train is moving. All right, inner voice. All right, time to go. Time to go, y'all. All aboard. Next stop, the interview with Dr. Maris. I hate my inner voice. I don't, I don't know why it's doing this stupid stuff. Let's, let's just get into the interview. Why are you making train sounds? <laughs> Help me, Jesus. <laughs> Let's get into the interview, y'all. So we're back for another great episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. I have one of my good doctor friends and the, a doctor who trained me as well, Dr. Maris, with me today on the podcast. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Maris. You are so welcome. I'm so happy to be here, Randy. Thank you. Thank you. She's one of my favorite attendings to work with. She always grills me every time in the clinic, in the hospital. She just made sure that I was the smartest doctor that I could be. So I appreciate all the teaching that you gave me during my tenure during residency. So Dr. Maris does a lot of work with the LGBTQI community. She has a specific clinic here out in Atlanta, correct? Or is it in one of the suburbs of Atlanta? It's in Atlanta. It's in uh, Virginia Highlands, actually. Okay, so she has a special clinic um, for that community in the Virginia Highlands area of Atlanta. So I thought it would be appropriate to have her on the podcast with me kind of to discuss um, health within the LGBTQI community and other things kind of pertaining to them. So that's why I brought her here on the podcast today. So what kind of geared your interest into working with that community? Well, you know, there's a lot of answers to that question. And I think over the years, that answer has probably changed. Um, You know, it's also a very personal question and um, have had lots of really close people, both family and friends in my life who have kind of for kind of felt firsthand what it feels like to be someone identifies as LGBT plus, that's what I usually say, and what that feels to be marginalized in our community, um, both by the healthcare system, but also on a personal and relationship kind of way. 
And so it's, it's something that was really salient to me as a young person when I advocated for family and friends who identified. Um, and then when I chose the career in medicine, really noticed that there was really a dearth of doctors who and healthcare providers in general getting training specifically to serve this community. And it is kind of what sparked my interest, my personal experience, but also kind of this kind of eye-opening experience I had as a med Mm -hmm. student and as a resident. Okay. So during medical school, you helped to develop the organization too as well called the Gay-Straight Alliance, if I'm correct? Yeah. So so the Gay-Straight Alliance was actually something that I was a part of with with several students. Mm -hmm. Um, And and what actually, I, I think I've probably told you this story in years past, but we had one lecture when I was in med school and I love my alma mater. Mm-hmm. Um, I trained here in the South and from South Carolina, um, although I left temporarily to do residency in Philly. But um, when I was a med student, they tried to do one lecture related to LGBT plus care. Mm-hmm. And what happened was lots of my class left the lecture hall. And at first, um, I thought they were feeling similar to me, like meeting the lecture, which was half the time spent on something called like a gaydar game. Hmm. Um, that they were thinking it was kind of offensive and maybe leaving um, when I kind of naively realized later that everyone was leaving because I just didn't want to talk about the subject. Mm-hmm. And so I felt really kind of charged to make sure we were having more conversations related to LGBT healthcare. And um, me and several other like-minded students kind of tried to improve that agenda on the kind of med student level. What made, in your opinion, what made them leave the lecture from what you were kind of hearing? Was it kind of taboo back then to talk about those things in public or they just didn't want to talk about them at all? Yeah, I think it was probably some combination of lots of different things. Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely the ones that you're alluding to. um, Some of it was kind of Um, in my opinion, misinformed religious perspectives, people feeling awkward. Yeah, so lots of different things, I think. So what came about as far as with the the organization that y'all helped to form? Well, the organization, it did lots of things. One of them was social, like it just Mm -hmm. um, created a platform for us to organize as a group around like-minded people and to feel a sense of inclusivity to have a visible, you know, platform to say, hey, not only is it important to train healthcare professionals about the unique healthcare needs of this community, but this community is in our healthcare system already, whether we're going to acknowledge it or not. And so it was a safe space for people who identified as LGBT to, to realize that there were other people in the system to support them. And one of the things after this that I really realized was that I, I wanted to kind of have an impact on healthcare providers' education, um, which is something that I embraced after that experience more in residency to develop actual curriculum mm-hmm. um, to teach medical providers. So what kind of things do you have in that curriculum? Yeah, so that, that actually happened in residency. And like I said, I was in Philly for my residency. Um, and I did a national search to see what existed in the United States health system to kind of formally teach healthcare providers cultural competency. And the only kind of well-developed program I found was actually in the New York healthcare system um, and their hospital system. And so I reached out to them and got all of their material and morphed something um, to my own with their permission, of course. It included this video, which I know you've seen. I play it to the residents all the time. Mm-hmm. 
And then depending on the audience, um, I basically included different games, different discussions, and some of it was lecture-based to kind of stimulate conversations to make people feel comfortable, and then to also kind of educate them on some of these topics. So you work heavily in the community right now with your clinic over there in the Virginia Highlands. Um, is your clinic different from the main clinic that you work at, or y'all just advertise more to have more individuals come in, make it a more welcoming, safe place and make individuals feel like they'll be treated appropriately and not discriminated against? Let me start by saying my hope is that eventually we will never have to have clinics like this. I know that Mm -hmm. sounds silly to say, but that every doctor feels comfortable treating people, um, no matter how they identify um, with their orientation or um, with their gender identity. But but my premise for this clinic was to create a place that from the minute you walked in the door to the minute you checked out, that every step of the way people felt comfortable, that it was you know gender affirming and people felt comfortable with languages related to people's bodies and identities and that it was going to be an embracing clinic um, on every level of the experience. And my hope is that eventually as a system in our healthcare system that I have been trying to do training in our system as well, to make other clinics kind of embrace some of these same philosophies, even if they're not quote identifying as a exactly as an LGBT plus clinic. So yeah, let's go back to kind of what you mentioned just a little bit earlier, just about kind of gender affirming and using the proper nouns when addressing people. So what's the proper way to approach somebody with that conversation, either from a healthcare perspective or just someone who's not even in healthcare, who just meets someone of that community? Because that's kind of like a tough initial conversation for some people is how do you want to be called? Yeah, you know, there's so many ways to respond to that. There's a couple tips I usually give people. One is to mirror the language people use from themselves. And so in the community, um, assuming people are using their own pronouns and their preferred names, then that can be easy just to mirror the language that they use. As a healthcare provider, you have to create that opportunity. And so people may default to legal names if they haven't changed their names or to pronouns that were assigned to them at birth that they may or may not feel comfortable. And so on a systemic level, as a healthcare provider, you have to have that option. So intake forms have to say, you know, male, female, trans male, every pronoun you can potentially consider um, to give the opportunity. But, you know, um, and I I hate to talk about gender identity and sexual orientation kind of in the same topic because they're obviously two very different things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, embracing people and being open-minded and empathic and asking. Um, I ask all my new patients what pronouns they prefer, and that's just part of the intake form. And so, again, mirroring people's language and being open and understanding that it may or may not match what's on their forms. What kind of feedback have you heard from individuals, from patients regarding having the question of what would you like to be called, seeing that on the actual paperwork? I'm assuming they're happy that they're asked those type of questions. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think I have patients that um, travel from Tennessee, from Alabama, from North Mm -hmm. Carolina. Um, It's crazy to me. And it, it's so hard for me to think that there has been such poor interactions with the healthcare system prior to that, that they felt the need to come that far. Mm-hmm. 
So, so sure. Like I've, I've had lots of personal stories from people. Um, it is cathartic to not have to be misgendered constantly, especially by someone who's taking care of your health. Um, and it just, it kills trust, which, you know, is the fundamental piece of being a good primary care doctor is um, having that therapeutic relationship. So, um, yeah, it, it has been really wonderful to hear those kinds of things. Right, right. What kind of health disparities does that community usually have that they that you've noticed since um, starting in that clinic? Yeah, so I obviously noticed these before this this clinic, um, which is kind of what made me interested in it. But there's tons, honestly. Um, so you know, I've talked to you about this stuff before, but in the lesbian community the rates of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, alcoholism, depression, suicide, obesity, fatty liver, um, all of those things are higher in the lesbian community than the general population. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of reasons for that that extend beyond kind of healthcare opportunities. um, And some of it is related to kind of idiosyncratic things related to estrogen exposure and things like that. But trans community, um, increased risk for victimization, um, you know, so many things. Um, Again, the LGBT plus youth, much, much higher rates of mental illness. um, Mm -hmm. so, So many things, you know, anal cancer, things that go unnoticed. Yeah, lots of things. I could I could tell you about lots of stuff. <laughs> you can list up for days probably what's going yeah. on, what they tell you. Mm-hmm. What have um, individuals kind of expressed to you that we need to do better as far as healthcare? I mean, as far as doctors in general? Well, you, you've heard me say this. So you never know who's walking into your door. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if somebody identifies as a straight man sexual behaviors do not follow someone's self-identified sexual orientation, right? Uh-huh. So Atlanta knows this better than any community. Um, in the 90s with men on the DL, men who identified as straight men having sex with men. And this is one of the reasons that, you know, as a Black man and as a Black woman, the HIV rates in our community are crazy. But that applies to everyone. Um, you know, the fluidity with how someone identifies their behaviors and whether it's congruent with their what they put on their paperwork is not always accurate. And so doctors in general just have to become more comfortable talking, taking good sexual histories. Um, you know, one of the things that we may talk about is something like PrEP. And a lot of PrEP, for people who don't know, of course, is medicine that prevents you from obtaining HIV. Um, and so people who are at high risk could, should be on a medicine, Truvada mm-hmm. or Descovy, to prevent acquisition of HIV. And so there's this, and even in the medical community, amongst doctors and nurse practitioners and PAs, they think only gay men should be offered PrEP. When mm-hmm. in reality, anyone who has high-risk sexual behaviors, no matter what kind of sex they're having, Um, should be offered PrEP. Mm -hmm. And so just encouraging most doctors to just get comfortable asking questions that can be uncomfortable. Right, right. Yeah. Those sexual conversations are always kind of awkward and uncomfortable to have with individuals. But 
they must be had to get to the root of how to treat somebody properly to figure out what they do and don't need to help them out. But like um, Dr. Maris mentioned, there is this drug, uh, a couple of drugs that we use to decrease an individual's risk of potentially getting HIV. And that's the PrEP therapy that she's um, mentioned earlier. So I know I've had those conversations and I've started individuals on PrEP therapy before. It's just always about being educated on how to properly dose the medication and explaining the risks to patients about doing that. And you're right, it's not always gay males who need to be on the medication. It's high-risk individuals who may need to be on the medication as well. I would bargain to tell you half of our teenagers having sex out there might benefit from PrEP is the reality. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and how many times do you see the same people coming back for STD testing? When you see someone Mm -hmm. back for their third STD testing in, you know, several months, that might be the time that you ask them if they want to go on PrEP, no matter what kind of sex they're having. Right, right. Yep, yep. I have a couple of people that I can think of offhand that I probably need to have some conversations with now that we're having this, this topic. And a lot of patients come and they bring it up before I can even bring it up because they they talk to someone in their community or they looked it up themselves and they're like, I, I want to start on it. And I, for those type of patients, like I always kind of bring them back because they may throw it in because it's it's a sometimes a nervous conversation. They may throw it in at the end of a physical. Like, I don't have the time to have the proper conversation for this type of um, medication and this type of therapy. And just for me to have the conversation with you, I need to bring you back for another visit because I don't like to feel rushed. And that's not one of those conversations that you can just kind of be rushed and talk about. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you think since I won't say how long ago you were in medical school, but (laughs) you feel like things have kind of progressed along as far um, as fast as you think they would or you think we still are behind? where you think we should be by the where we are right now? Well, I came back south from Philly because I always wanted to be a mover and a shaker. And I know mm-hmm. you know, um, I chose my current career to have a mentor and we always can learn and we always can do better. But the short answer is yes, I do think we're doing better. You know, from an education standpoint, like for example, Medical College of Georgia, Augusta University, they have a clinic now, an LGBT plus clinic um, for their mm-hmm. med students. And so that is awesome. Our PCOM students, our um, osteopathic students here locally at the Georgia campus, most of them rotate with an LGBT plus clinic here um, if they're doing local Atlanta um, work. And so I think it's becoming more and more integrated into training. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see it be a requirement, especially for fields like family medicine that they at least get some cultural competency in addition to basic training related to medical facts. So yeah, and again, I think there are programs coming up um, talking about fellowships related to this actually, to train doctors how to do hormone therapy, to make sure people know how to do anal paps, anal colposcopy. And so that is becoming more prevalent. But, you know, there are years like this last year, I had an emotional year for lots of reasons. But one of them was because one of the major things on the agenda for our government was the potential for prosecuting healthcare providers who provided hormone therapy to teens who identify as trans. So there's always little hiccups like that, um, which Mm -hmm. is a big one, um, that are scary to me as a provider. When I feel disheartened, 
but then I have a trans youth come from Tennessee who, you know, I have this amazing moment with them where I feel like they finally feel some hope in their kind of, in their perspective. So. Right. Right. So you have individuals who come from other States just to kind of seek out proper treatment. I do. Yeah. I'm not sure if you heard me say that before, but I, Mm -hmm. I have been having people not only in my Highlands practice, but in my, my Mara practice come um, from Tennessee and Alabama and North Carolina and even Florida. Um, Mm -hmm. It's pretty phenomenal. Right. Yeah. Are they coming to see you specifically because they kind of know your background or is it because of stuff that's going on in their own state as far as laws or just feel like they can't find anyone who will treat them properly or is it all of the above? The law thing, knock on wood, has not gone forward yet. So that is less of an issue that does come up sometimes with reproductive rights. But but no, it's word of mouth in the communities. And I thought when little myself, when I did my marketing scheme, that like the postings and the magazines and the whatever would be the most effective. But what I found is like the two flyers I dropped off at the gay bar or like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> The time that I went to a, a P flag meeting for parents, like those were the effective things. And it just like kids putting stuff on Facebook and mm-hmm. um, those kinds of things have been what's been effective, the word of mouth stuff. What, what's P flag? I don't know about that. Yeah. So P flag is a really old group. It's basically a quote support group for families of LGBT plus youth um, to come together to support each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what is the proper way that people should kind of go about on their own to find a doctor who may be geared towards them if they're in this community? I know you kind of mentioned like the flyers and stuff, but let's just say somebody's listening to this and they're trying to find somebody in their state. Maybe they're in California. They can't drive all the way to Georgia to see you. <laughs> <laughs> What's the proper way? California is doing pretty well. So. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I would love to tell you, go here and look up in this search engine and you will find someone magically. But the reality is our healthcare system is just not like that because Mm -hmm. people are basically have to pick who's in network um, with their insurance provider. So, you know, you can do Google searches. Um, Every healthcare system company has different ways that they identify as, quote, safe spaces. So, you know, looking to see if the organization, whether it's Kaiser or Wellstar or Emory or wherever your healthcare may be, if they have some designation already as an affiliation with um, national organizations that support LGBT plus health. Um, There are different not-for-profit organizations who have providers within them. Um, For example, the Campaign for Southern Equality is a wonderful resource in the Southeast. It lists um, all different providers um, in each of the different states um, for endocrine, mental health, primary care. So you can do a little comparison between what your insurance provider query does and then a little Mm -hmm. Google and then a little bit of a national organization search, honestly. Okay. And just to kind of go back and touch on something that you mentioned earlier, has federal law or state law prevented you into doing some of the things you want to do for certain individuals? Not not yet. You know, again, I don't want to speak too much about my family, but um, I come from a pretty amazing family. Um, and my parents, particularly my mother, was intimately involved in lots of equal rights movements over the years. And I 
you know, a lot of who I owe a lot of who I am to my mother and inspiring me to really embrace fighting for those who need to be fought for. Mm-hmm. But it takes a toll too. Um, I'm a mother and I want to protect my family. And so I want to fight for this community, but I also, you know, sometimes worry about my own family. And so, yeah, the biggest one right now that personally affects me as an LGBT plus provider is, is one that is currently because of COVID has been kind of back backlogged, I guess you could say, I don't know what the the proper legal term is, Mm -hmm. but there are several agendas right now in several states all across the country, um, including Georgia and Alabama, um, to try and prosecute doctors who treat trans teens um, under the age of 16. Um, the ACLU has said that they will fight this um, if it goes forward, but nothing has has been gone into law per se yet. Um, but that is something that I've been following really closely. Right. So has there been any statements on why they're trying to prosecute? Do they feel like uh, teenagers or children that age are too young to make those decisions for themselves? Yeah, so that's a complicated question. Even ironically, when you talk to doctors who specifically treat LGBT plus patients, so when you talk about, we call this puberty suppressing meds for really young kids. Mm -hmm. And so some doctors would tell you that it can be cathartic for a kiddo who at a very young age knows that they identify one way not to have to go through puberty and to develop breasts if they identify as a trans boy. There are some providers who actually think it can be helpful to have that experience. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is even debated amongst providers who do hormone therapy in the trans community. So but a lot of that is um, also religious um, when it comes to um, this stuff politically. I think um, I'm not a political aficionado, um, but there are conservative and progressive agendas that are pushed with each presidency. And this is one of the ones that was brought up through different lobbying groups to get pushed through this last round. Right, right. So Maybe on the back burner, maybe um, by the time it comes to the front burner, you'll be Senator Maris and maybe you can help push that agenda forward. Yeah. That's it for part one of the interview with Dr. Maris. We touch on some really great topics, especially in the latter portion. Next week, we'll get into talking about insurance companies and how they've been lacking in covering some health screening exams for the LGBTQ plus community. Look out for next week's episode within the upcoming week. It won't be longer than a week. It will come out next week. Hold me to it. And just a quick recap on prep therapy. There are currently two medications approved for PrEP therapy, which are, hopefully you said Truvada and Descovy. If you listen earlier and you really paid attention, you said Truvada and Descovy. These meds should be used in high-risk individuals. So let's recap once again, who is considered a high-risk individual? Individuals who have had anal or vaginal sex in the last six months and have a sexual partner with HIV, especially if the partner has an unknown or detectable viral load, individuals who don't consistently use condoms, P 
people who have been diagnosed with an STD in the last six months, and lastly, individuals who inject drugs with people who have HIV or share needles. Those individuals are considered high-risk individuals and should be on PrEP therapy. Common side effects include nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, so things affecting your digestive system, the GI tract. Serious side effects can include kidney damage, Keisha keying your car, and decreased white blood cell count. But as stated before, these are potential side effects and it is not guaranteed that you will have these side effects. So that's your quick wrap up on PrEP therapy. If you want a more detailed information, go back and listen to the first part of this episode. I'll be providing more information on PrEP therapy in the next episode. I'll be talking about effectiveness of those medications, what labs need to be done before starting the med, and other important information for PrEP therapy. I hope this information and episode was very helpful. Be sure to rate, like, and share with others. Share, share, share. And if you have a chance, just check out some of the past episodes. You might find some other topics that really interest you and just take a listen. Follow me on IG and Twitter at Dr. Randy. That's at underscore Dr. Randy. You can find the links in the show description. And as always, stay healthy physically and mentally. That's the end of the episode, Train. Everybody get off. And of course, you're still doing the strange thing. Yes, I am. Everybody off the train. If you leave anything, I will take it home. There is no lost and found on this train. I am taking everything home. You leave your jacket, leave your bag. I am taking it home. I will use your stuff. And what I can't use, I will be selling on Facebook Marketplace. So make sure to look under your seats. Check over your heads. Still going? Yes, I'm still going. Okay, y'all. I'm I'm just going to cut this episode off. Um, I'll see y'all in one week. And stay healthy physically and mentally.